You are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. Thanks for joining with us today. This year, we have begun a new series titled, Your Kingdom Come, based on the Old Testament book of 1st and 2nd Samuel. This is a book that calls us to action. The text prods and pokes us with this great question, will you submit your life to the Son of God? It's a call to humble ourselves before this King and trust in Jesus. For more information, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thanks for joining with us today. Well, happy Mother's Day. Today is a great day to give thanks for mothers, and so make sure you give thanks to God um, for mothers and give thanks to your own mother it is a fitting day to, to do so. So May is the month of prayer, and our specific theme in the month of prayer is praying for those who don't know Jesus in our lives. And so I just want to pause right here before we dive into the Word and give you a moment to think about that person you're praying for this week, so you can name them and then pray for them in the next couple of minutes, and then we'll proceed from there. So... Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we are thankful that you are the God who saves. And we are offering up prayers for those who do not know your Son and trust in him. And we offer these prayers up to you gladly and willingly. And we pray, oh, that you would be at work and that you would save many. Oh, Father, we ask that you would make us more desirous for the salvation of others, that we would long for others to come and know Jesus for who he is, his power, love, mercy, and grace. Father, we ask now, even in this moment, that you would come with power to save. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing on in our series this morning in the book of 1 Samuel, and if you would take out your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21, our sermon text is going to be chapter 21 and chapter 22 this morning. So we're going to start in chapter 21, verse 1, and we're going to read all the way to chapter 22, verse 23. So hear the word of our God. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, 
Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to him, elect the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever else is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madman, that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you until I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herod. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the, man, the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gabeah under a tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that you all have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Himelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and inquired of God for him, 
so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who's the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servants or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day eighty-five persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Oh, Father, we do ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word now. Amen. Well, the Lord Jesus has taught us to pray, and that is a gracious and good thing. And he gave us this petition. He put this petition in our mouth, your kingdom come. And if you've walked with Jesus for some amount of time, I am sure that you have offered up this particular petition many times. You've begun your day with this petition, Father, your kingdom come. You've ended your day with this petition, Father, your kingdom come. Perhaps even sporadically throughout the day, you've offered up the prayer to the Father, your kingdom come. And this is all for good reason, because as Christians, we, we long for the kingdom above all things. We seek the kingdom above all things. We, we put aside all lesser goods for the sake of the kingdom. But here is the question. What does it look like for the Father to answer our prayer? So Jesus has given us this petition, your kingdom come, and so we take this petition, we go to the Father, we offer it up to the Father in Jesus' name, praying, your kingdom come, and the Father answers our prayer. What does that mean for us? Or we can answer, ask that in a different way. When the Father answers that prayer, what does that look like for us? What does that mean for our lives? What do our lives look like when the Father begins to answer that petition? Well, as we turn our attention to the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, we are dealing with a kingdom story a story about the kingdom of God. And what 1 and 2 Samuel do is they, they chronicle the progress and the growth of God's kingdom on earth. And we want to focus in on this, underlining it, bold-facing it, highlighting it. The Old Testament is not a random collection of stories. Rather, the Old Testament is, is God's record of God's activity as God brings His rule and reign to bear upon this world and everyone who lives in this world. So we need to think about that for a moment. As Christians, we, we insist upon the historical nature of the Bible. And so we can think about that for a moment. We insist that the characters we read in the Old Testament actually were real. So in First and Second Samuel, we meet Hannah, 
We meet Eli, we meet Samuel, Saul, and David, and and we say these people really did live. Even more, we say that the events in this story actually happened. Hannah actually gave birth to a son and called his name Samuel. David actually went out into the valley of Elah, and there he struck down Goliath and, and prevailed over him. But as we think about it, this cannot be the extent of our insistence. As Christians, we insist upon something even more audacious something more extreme than the historicity of the Old Testament. We believe in the theological nature of the Old Testament. We believe that in and through these characters, in and through these events, that we actually come to know God and what He is like and what He is doing in this world. That means as we open up the book of First and Second Samuel and as we turn the pages and as we read the stories, we're running into God, we're looking at God, we're studying God. In fact, with these words, we're, we're dealing with God Himself. And so this means something for us. Really practical. In this book, we get to see what it means for God to bring His kingdom to earth. We get to see in tangible and concrete detail what happens when God begins to answer our prayers. Your kingdom come. So as we think about this, our two chapters focus their attention upon David's exit from Saul's house. And so appropriately, time and attention in these two chapters are given both to David as he flees and to Saul as he's going to begin to to pursue David. And our job as readers is to look carefully at both of these characters to observe them. As God establishes his kingdom, we get to see what the coming of the kingdom means for David and all of those who follow after David. And at the same time, we get to see what the coming of the kingdom means for Saul and all of those who resist the coming of God's kingdom with him. So we get to see what the coming of the kingdom means as we look at David's life and as we look at Saul's life. We get to see God and what he is doing. So our plan this morning is super simple. We're going to look at David, and then we're going to look at Saul. So let's start first with David and his relationship with the kingdom of God. So as we think about David's life, his life has been on a meteoric rise. We first met David, and he was the youngest and smallest son of Jesse. In fact, when when Samuel came to anoint the king at this secret meal, David wasn't even invited to the meal. But ever since that event in the Valley of Elah, when when David went out and he, he defeated the giant, David has been on the rise. He has grown in popularity. The women of Israel love to sing the praises of David. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David has struck down his ten thousands. David has grown in power. He's been accumulating it. No one has the ability, the enterprise, as David, as a military commander and leader and warrior. And on top of this, he's received honor after honor after honor. Where does he eat? He eats at the king's table. Who does he have as a wife? He has the king's daughter as a wife. He is in the king's family, the most honored in all of Israel. And so as we look at David's life, as we've been chronicling it in the the book of 1 Samuel, we can see that God has been at work in David's life. No one can doubt that. We can see the kingdom of God. It's advancing. It's taking shape around him. Finally, before us stands the anointed, the king that Israel needs. God has provided him. Here's David. And so this whole scenario, as we see it playing out, creates a host of expectations in our heads. We ask, well, what does the coming of the kingdom mean for David? What does it mean for the cause of God to advance in David's life and ministry to Israel? 
Well, we've been set up to give this answer. It means, it means more power for David. It means more honor for David. It means more popularity for David. It means that David, he's going to climb up on the ladder of success a few more rungs, a few more steps. It's going to keep going up. But as we take a long and hard look, we just read chapter 21 and chapter 22. We don't find that. Our expectations are, are burst. In fact, when we read these two chapters, the opposite happens. David is systematically stripped of his power, of his honor, and his popularity. And we just need to slow down, and we need to take a look at each one of these humiliations that David experiences in these two chapters. David first loses his power. So David is fleeing from Saul, and his flight from Saul is so frantic, so desperate, that he doesn't have time to or the ability to take with him the most basic of provisions. He doesn't have a sword. He doesn't have bread. So David goes to Nob, and he meets the priest. And David begins to spin his yarn with the priest. And he's employing righteous deception so that Ahimelech would have this, this, this plausibility of denial when Saul would come and question him. And so David spins the yarn. He's on this top-secret mission for the king, and, the, and this mission is so urgent that no one knows about it. And now he needs supplies from Ahimelech. So David starts to plead with Ahimelech. Chapter 21, verse 3. Give me loaves of bread or whatever else is here. He continues on pleading in verse 8. He says, then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? So here is David. He's with Ahimelech at Nob, and he is pleading for provisions. And we need to take this in for a moment. David, at this point in the story, has no bread no sword. He has literally nothing with him. And to make matters worse, David has no ability, no way to provide for himself. All that he can do at this point in the story is cast himself upon the mercy of another man. All that David can do is he, he can plead for what he needs. And so what's the result of this scene? David is now powerless. He is reduced to pleading and begging. The story moves on, and we find a second humiliation of David. He loses his honor. And so David leaves Nob, and he has provisions. He's got bread, and he's got a sword. But, but then David makes a turn that, that makes us scratch our heads. He goes to Gath. And just think about the irony of this. What does David have in his possession? He's got the sword of Goliath. And, and where is Goliath from? Where did he grow up? He grew up in Gath. Perhaps David, as he, as he traveled to Gath, thought that he could perhaps uh, cover himself as some sort of mercenary or a refugee. But whatever David's plan was, the text doesn't tell us. It didn't work. Because when David showed up in Gath, he was immediately recognized. Look at verse 11. Is not this David the king of the lands? So David has been recognized, and he feels the trouble that he's in. The, the pressure is building. This isn't a safe place. This was not a good choice to make. David is full of fear. So what does David do? What's his route of escape? Well, look down at verse 13 in chapter 21. David plays the insanity card. The text says he, he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. David's behavior is not a bit of play acting like we do sometimes. We pretend we're acting crazy with our kids, and there's a wink, wink, and a nod, nod, and there's a chuckle. We're having fun. We're acting crazy, doing crazy things. But this is not David here. This wasn't fun. This wasn't enjoyable. This wasn't entertaining. David did what he humiliated himself in the presence of a king. 
What did David do? He made himself an object of disgust. And David succeeded. So successful was David that he became odious to Achish. So odious that Achish said, get this madman away from me. I don't want this man around me. And so we ask, well, what's the result of this scene then? David has made himself a fool. He has been stripped of his honor. And the story moves on. We find a third humiliation. And so David flees from the Philistines, and and now he makes his home in a cave. And at this point, knowledge about David's whereabouts are are spread throughout the land of Israel. So, So David's family comes to David, and for good reason. They need shelter too. And also a group of 400 men come to David. And the text begins to describe these men to us. So chapter 22, verse 2. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. Surely, on the one hand, David was relieved to have these 400 men surrounding him. It would have been precious good news for David. He's got an army. He's got a measure of security and protection now from Saul. That's a significant fighting force of men. But we also have to understand, on the other hand, this was no easy situation for for David. This wasn't a a pleasant set of circumstances. Don't picture in your mind Robin Hood chilling out and camping out in the Sherwood Forest with his band of merry men having fun, playing all day. That's not David in his situation here. No, look at the text. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. I don't know about you, but that does not seem like a happy set of guys to be hanging around with. These men are bitter and discontent. They're the social outcasts of Israel. And so what's the result of this scene? Well, again, David's fortunes have changed. David's popularity is not what it once was. David isn't getting songs from from women now. Rather, he's in a, a cave. On top of that, he's not surrounded by royal counselors anymore. He's not surrounded by honorable and wise men. Jonathan isn't by his side. He isn't seated with Abner. None of these men are there. Rather, he's surrounded by a group of unhappy and bitter men. And so the text just parades these humiliations before us. David has lost power. David has lost honor. David has lost popularity. And what we see happening in these two chapters is is disorienting and confusing for us. We're taking it all in as readers, and we say, well, I thought the Lord chose and anointed David. I thought the Lord was for David and was going to make David prosper and succeed in everything that he was going to do. I thought the kingdom of God was advancing and making progress in this story. But when I read these chapters, all I see is trouble. Look, there is David weakened. He is begging for bread and a sword. Look, there is David. He is made a fool, acting as a madman, with spittle running down his beard in the presence of a foreign king. Look. David has lost all popularity. Who gathers around him? A group of social outcasts. And at this point, as we read these two chapters, we're presented with two choices to make as readers. We read chapter 21, we read chapter 22, we see all of the shame, all the trouble going on in David's life, and we say this, God's kingdom has stopped advancing. The kingdom... It can't be coming anymore. God's reign, it's stagnant here. And we say this because at bottom we believe that all the suffering, all the shame, all the desperation we see in David's life is incompatible with God's glorious reign and rule. It doesn't fit. It can't work. God's not working here anymore. But there's a second choice 
And I think the second choice is the better choice. We look at chapter 21, we look at chapter 22, we assess all that's happening in David's life, and we say this, God's kingdom is advancing. God's reign is taking shape and form and moving forward. And we say this because we believe at bottom in our hearts that God doesn't operate according to the values of this present age. In fact, we believe that God is committed to overturning all the values of this present age. This means then, we should try to put this as graphically as possible. This means then that David begging pleading for a sword, pleading for bread. This means then that the spittle running down David's beard, David acting like a madman, marking the doors of the gates. This means then David surrounded by these 400 outcasts of men, discontent. This is the advance of God's glorious reign on earth. This is God taking charge of the world. That's profound. And if that's true, that means something for us, doesn't it? What should we expect when we pray Jesus' prayer as he taught us, your kingdom come? Well, we should expect all sorts of things, but I want to focus in on one thing. When we pray your kingdom come, we should expect to see the kingdom of God come. We should expect to see the kingdom of God come. But again, what does that look like? What does the Father show us when we pray, your kingdom come? What chapters 21 and 22 are doing, they're they're training us for the kingdom of God. These two chapters are saying this, look here, see the glorious rule and reign of God. Look there, the, the anointed is weakened. Look there, the anointed is shamed. Look there, he is stuck in a cave with a bunch of social outcasts. That's God's rule and reign. That's God taking charge of this world. And as we begin to meditate on and make connections, the gospel speaks a similar word. Because if we take chapter 21, if we take chapter 22 to heart, we are ready to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in the gospel, God comes to us, and what does he do? He shows us the advance of the kingdom of God. He shows us God taking charge of this world. And he says this, behold the kingdom of God. Look at my power and my might. Look at me taking charge over all of my enemies. Look at the weakness of my son, Jesus. His body beaten and bruised. His flesh mutilated and scourged. His blood and his tears literally spilt everywhere. He says to us, behold the kingdom of God. See the shame of my son. There he is crucified as a criminal. There he is made a spectacle. There he is made an object of scorn and ridicule. God says to us, behold the kingdom of God. Look at the disgrace of my son. Look at his right hand. Look at his left hand. Who is he crucified with? He is crucified with with criminals. Men who don't deserve the, the breath that they breathe. And so we can ask, how can we know if God has answered our prayers, your kingdom come? Well, we can know if God has answered our prayers, whether we have seen this, whether we have seen the crucified Son of God. And brothers and sisters, this is God's triumph in this world, the crucified Messiah. In fact, this is how God advances his glorious rule and reign, even in the present moment. What does God do? He shows sinners the crucified Messiah. He says, behold, look at the shame of my son. Look at the weakness of my son. Look at his crucifixion. This is how I conquer hearts and minds for my kingdom. And so we see David, 
And as we look at David, we cannot help but to think of Jesus. We cannot help but to understand the kingdom of God in this present age. So there we have David and the kingdom of God. Now we need to change directions, change gears, and consider Saul and his relationship to the kingdom of God. So we know a few things about Saul from this story. Saul was anointed the first king of Israel. And we also know that Saul was rejected as the first king of Israel because of his repeated disobedience against the Lord's word. The Lord told him to go, and Saul said no, and again and again Saul would disobey. And on top of this, we know that Saul is now actively striving against the rule and reign of God, against God's kingdom. And we know this because Saul has decided in his heart to murder David, the Lord's anointed. And so we ask, well, what does the coming of the kingdom mean for Saul? What does it mean for Saul? We might be tempted to think that the coming of the kingdom would mean Saul's immediate demise. So think of a bug walking on the sidewalk. What does the coming of the kingdom mean? Well, we would think, well, God with his huge big shoe is going to come and splat. There goes Saul. His sin, his rebellion, it's finished. Glorious. But as we read the story, that doesn't happen in the text. God doesn't come along the sidewalk with his big shoe, and he doesn't smash Saul. Instead, we find what? We find Saul carrying on in his sin, getting stronger in his sin. And so we ask, well, what, what's going on? What's God doing in this? Well, here's the answer. The coming of God's kingdom incites Saul to further sin for this reason, that Saul would be exposed before all for who he truly is. So we can think about it like this. What does the coming of the kingdom of God do? Simply put, it exposes sin. It exposes sin. And if we are careful to follow the text, we will see the Lord doing this work in the passage. So let's jump back into the story. So in chapter 22, verses 7 and 8, look there with me. We find Saul, and he's at Gabeah, he's under the, the tamarisk tree, and his servants are gathered around him. You can picture the scene in his mind. There's Saul, and he's berating his servants. He says this, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. So we know Saul, and much is familiar to us. Saul is angry here, and that's nothing new. Saul has been angry throughout the story. We see that Saul is paranoid again, and that's nothing new. He thinks everyone, absolutely everyone is out to get him. That's how he's interpreting reality. Everyone is out to get him. There's nothing new with that. What's coming into clear focus here is, is Saul's self-centered focus, his, his view of life. Every sentence, every complaint is focused on himself. What does he say at nearly the end of every sentence? Me, 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 me. So we ask, well, what is the Lord doing here? What's happening? Well, the Lord is beginning to reveal Saul's heart to himself and to all those who are gathered around him. All of his servants are hearing Saul talk about me. We need to keep following the story because it gets more ugly. So Saul is berating his servants, and none of his servants offer him any sort of help to get after David. They're all speechless except for one man, Doeg the Edomite. And we first heard of Doeg back in chapter 1. 
We got this side little comment that when David went to Ahimelech, Doag was detained before the Lord and he was observing all that was going on. And now Doeg takes his precious information and he shares it with Saul. And as we might expect, Saul is enraged. And so he calls Ahimelech and all the priests from Nob and he interrogates Ahimelech. But it doesn't really matter what Ahimelech does. Ahimelech can plead, he can talk reason, he can argue with Saul. Saul won't listen. Why? Because Saul is out for blood. Look at verse 16. Saul gives the sentence, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And again, with that, Saul calls his servants to action. Go and kill. Go and strike the priests of the Lord. But, but again, none of his servants will answer him. And we see Saul's leadership just falling apart. Men are not willingly and gladly following him. Except for one man again. Doeg the Edomite. Saul speaks to Doeg, and Doeg willingly and gladly follows the command. And then we hear this grisly account. Go down to verses 18 and 19. Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests and killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. The story wants us to slow down and gaze upon all the blood and all the dead bodies. Priests are dead. Men are dead. Women are dead. Children are dead. Babies are dead. Animals are dead. What's going on here? What we're learning about Saul. Throughout the narrative, Saul has been in many ways able to keep his sin under wraps. He has vented his anger again and again and again, but most often his anger has been vented in private setting before his own counselors, before his own entourage. He has planned murder. He's done this countless times, but it's been out of wraps, out of sight of the public. Saul has taken his spear and he's, he's thrown it at David three times. He's thrown it at his own son, Jonathan. But yet again, each one of these times, it was a, a rather private event. But now, we can see Saul's anger, Saul's envy, Saul's murderous heart. It's what it's been revealed to all of Israel. It cannot be hidden anymore. Saul is exposed now. But it gets worse. How can it get worse? Well, Saul's not just a murderer. He's just not angry. He's just not envious. But he is an enemy of Yahweh himself. He's an enemy of the Lord. And this event declares it to all of Israel that Saul is not warring against David. Saul is warring against Yahweh. So we need to take our text and we need to compare it with an earlier story. And the, the story wants us to do this. So if you remember back in chapter 15, Samuel came to Saul. And he gave him directions. He said, you must go to the Amalekites and you must do this work. Listen, 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now listen to our text. Chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests and killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod and Nob. The city of the priests he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, sheep, he put to the sword. The story wants us to, to set these stories beside them, beside each other, and, and examine them. So back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul got this command to go to Amalek and to destroy the enemies of the Lord. The Amalekites were evil enemies of Yahweh. 
But what did Saul do? He refused to carry out the vengeance of Yahweh, and he willingly and he gladly spared the Amalekites, and he willingly and gladly took the best of their things for himself when they all should have been devoted to destruction. But then we move to our text, and we see Saul. What is he doing? He is carrying out vengeance, but it's not Yahweh's vengeance. It's his own vengeance. And who does he carry this vengeance out against? Who does he carry holy war out against? Not the enemies of Yahweh, but the people of Yahweh, the priests of Yahweh. And he does it with no pity, with no mercy at all. And what's happening here? Saul is exposed for who he truly is. Saul is exposed. He is an enemy of Yahweh himself. Now there's a lesson for us in all of this. When we pray, your kingdom come, we should expect to see evil that was previously hidden and out of sight. We should expect to see sin that was carefully hidden under wraps. We should expect to see rebellion that was tucked away, brought out into the open and exposed for what it is. When we pray, your kingdom come, we should expect to see sin exposed. And we shouldn't be surprised when this happens, when it happens in our families, when it happens in our church, when it happens in our city, in our nation, or in this world. When we play your kingdom come, God is going to expose sin. You see, that's what the kingdom of God does. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of light. And when the kingdom of God advances, when it moves forward, when it takes control of this world, it shines its light into all the dark and ugly places. And we get to see, when the light shines, what was there in the dark and ugly places places, as it isn't hidden any longer. We see this taking place in the life of David. The kingdom of God is advancing and the light is shining. And what do we see? We see Saul for who he is. His anger, his murder, his envy, it cannot be hidden away anymore, but the light shines and we see Saul. Or you can fast forward in your Bibles to the New Testament and we see this very thing happening in Jesus' own ministry. As the kingdom of God advances in and through the Messiah, Jesus, the light of God is shining. What do we see? Well, you remember those characters, the scribes, the Pharisee, the temple authorities? These were religious men. They had this religious garb about them. They could keep all their unclean thoughts, their unclean motives hidden away, their, their anger, their envy. It was all hidden away, except when Jesus came and started preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And what happened? These men were enraged. And the light of the kingdom exposed these men as what? As murderers. And the whole world saw it, and we still talk about it today. They are the ones who killed the author of life. And we can be sure that this is happening even in this present day, even in this present hour. The Lord Jesus Christ is shining his light, and he's exposing men and women day after day after day. The light is shining, and darkness is being exposed. In fact, this is what is going to happen on the last day. The light will shine and all darkness will be eradicated. Not a shadow will be left. Not one hiding place will be left. The light will shine everywhere and we will see everything for what it truly is. The Apostle Paul says, The Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the hidden purposes of the heart. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5. So there we have our story or most of it. We've looked at David and what the coming of the kingdom means for him. We've looked at Saul and what the coming of the kingdom means for him. And here's the question we have to grapple with. 
what do we do with these two chapters? We've got David in front of us. We've got Saul in front of us. How, how do we respond to this, to this sermon? Well, I want to take you to the end of our text, the end of chapter 22, and I want to conclude here. So verses 20 through 23. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, and I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. So brothers and sisters, God's kingdom is indeed coming. It has come in the ministry and life of Jesus. It is coming and it will come in its fullness. So what ought we to do in this present day? The light is shining and we're, we're beginning to see more and more evil around us. Evil men are growing stronger and stronger. What shall we do in this present day? Well, look at the end of chapter 22. Here is the call of the gospel. Follow in the footsteps of Abiathar. Follow in the footsteps of Abiathar. He encountered the evil of Saul. It was there. He saw it all happen. And Abiathar knew that there's only one safe place, and that one safe place was God's anointed David. And brothers and sisters, we receive a better call because the gospel calls us to flee to Jesus Christ himself. And hear this, there is only one refuge the man who became weak for us. There is only one Savior, the one who became an object of shame for us. And if you run to this Jesus, if you flee to him, he's going to say something like this to you, like David spoke to Abiathar. Do not be afraid. With me, you will be in safekeeping. That is the message of Jesus Christ to you. Let's pray. Well, Father, we give thanks to you, we rejoice over your word, and we confess that we need it more than anything else. And so we continue to pray, even this morning, your kingdom come. Would you show us Jesus, the crucified Messiah, and would you continue your ways in this earth, exposing sin? We long for your coming, Jesus. Would you please come? We pray this. Amen.